and we tried the case and it resulted in a $100 million verdict to take care of Lauren for the rest of her life. Can we find the troubled kid who may become a killer, how we lost our children? And so since their case, every Little League coach in the United States of America, and obviously that's transpired to every sport, AAU basketball, any league, now does criminal background checks. And it, you know, it's because of two brothers in, in Southern California who you know, had the courage to do that. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice sought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Parallel Justice. Today, we have a very special guest with us to discuss big cases that change industries, which is really a foundation of what we like to talk about in Parallel Justice is changing industries. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mike Haggard. Mike, it's wonderful to have you here with us to talk about how civil justice can motivate industries, agencies, and really our society to keep families, communities, and individuals safe. Before we get into all of that, I want to start with the very basics, though. Why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Where do you practice? Tell us a little bit about you. Sure, sure. Well, my name is Michael Haggard, and I practice down in South Florida, in Miami specifically, and we handle cases all over the country, but mainly throughout Florida. And uh, our firm is what you would call a boutique firm. We're six lawyers. All trial lawyers represent, uh, obviously, all plaintiffs and mostly victims of crime and victims of drownings and, and all type of personal injury and wrongful death cases. But uh, it was a family firm. My dad started it many years ago and my brother-in-law and I are partners. And, uh, you know, we're just, you know, you're old fashioned trial lawyers. We go to trial as much as we can to try to achieve justice for our clients. 
Ed, what would you call a threshold for a big verdict case? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, sometimes everybody gets wrapped up in numbers, you know, and 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 those always change. You know, it used to be the first million dollar verdict, and then maybe an eight figure verdict, and now even nine figure verdicts. But I, but I think really it's about you know the novelty maybe of the case, you know, and how how it might shock an industry, which I know we'll talk about. That wow, we can be held liable for this. We have to think about that. How do we change our behaviors? And obviously, with that comes numbers. You know, when a when an industry sees a you know multi million dollar verdict, you know that's the first thing that gets the headlines. And then really, what matters after that is the substance of it and how hopefully that terrible event for that particular victim can change the course so we don't have future victims. And I like that you just said that. And and I want to discuss that idea. You know, we call this podcast parallel justice, and and it really fits with a lot of these cases. There are quite a few programs out there that identify parallel justice as a victim-centered approach to crime and harm that works parallel to, but completely independent from the criminal justice system, which we all know so well. So again, I, I think these big verdict cases are a great example of this because beyond the money, they force policy change. And one of my favorite things about every victim that comes to me as the director of the National Crime Victim Bar Association is the victim always says, this isn't about money. I wanna make change. I, I want to make sure that nobody else gets hurt. It's always about policy for the victims and it's these big verdicts, it's money that forces the industries and the companies that are being negligent to start to make those changes. Absolutely, you know, you know there's, there's always gonna be another bad guy, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's, you know, and, and but the, the question is, how do we change society, you know, to number one, maybe, you know, make sure we don't have that increased education, you know, safety, but but also, you know, how that we can provide, you know, places that don't allow this behavior anymore. You know, you think about, we could throw out anything like the Boy Scout case, cases, you know, there are all these bad individual actors that the criminal justice system is going to take care of. But what can every youth organization learn from that so that they can prevent the next bad guy from doing that in their organization or a similar organization? And that's how we, we make profound societal change uh, from a terrible act of violence. And I like that you use the Boy Scouts. Another example is the Catholic Church, where we knew for decades the Catholic Church was moving priests that they knew had abused children. And it was finally through all of the lawsuits that just started flying in that they started really in the 90s and early 2000s, after these complaints have been coming in since the 50s, that they started to make policy changes about moving priests, about reporting priests. So, so you're right, with the Boy Scouts, with everyone, it's when you hit people in the wallet, it's when they start to pay attention. So we talked a lot about child sex abuse cases leading off, which is odd for us. Um, we're here today to talk about negligent security cases and a couple of other cases. So can you explain quickly, just so we're all on the same page, what's a negligent security case? Sure. So, so all premises owners have a simple duty through all, through, you know, all 50 states, and that's to keep their uh, premises reasonably safe. And their invitees, meaning whoever's there, um, safe from foreseeable harm. So negligent security cases obviously have come out of violent crimes that have occurred at any type of commercial property, you know, whether it's a hotel, an apartment complex, a shopping mall, a gas station, a bar, we could come up with any 
commercial property and and when that commercial property is on notice that there could be you know reasonable crime activity there that it's that's foreseeable to have crime there they have a duty to keep those premises reasonably safe and what that means in a security in the crime context is that they need to have reasonable security whether that is a security guard whether it's good lighting whether it's surveillance cameras depends on every uh case but that's really what it's about it is what is the security adequate at a location to prevent a crime that could likely occur okay so let's drill that down to specifics your first hundred million dollar verdict was on behalf of Lori and Lonnie Hinton. What happened in that case? So that was a, a case, uh, a tragic drowning case, obviously involving a, a three-year-old little girl, and uh, they lived in an apartment complex. And um, Lonnie Hinton was was her father. He was cooking down at a barbecue, a uh, communal barbecue in the apartment complex, and his two little kids, Bubba, was a five-year-old boy and Lauren, who was three years old at the time, were playing hide-and-go-seek in the area. And Lonnie um, took up the food to the apartment real quick and asked some, a group of people, hey, can you watch the kids? And unfortunately, Lauren, um, playing hide-and-go-seek, went through a broken pool gate. And um, the gate was not self-closing, was not self-latching. There was a kiddie slide at the, right on the edge of the pool. Kids are attracted to that. She went right there, took off her shoes, and went into the water. And uh, some neighbors that were up, actually upstairs saw her in the water. They jumped in and they saved her. But unfortunately, she suffered irreversible and catastrophic brain damage, wasn't able to eat, wasn't able to talk, communicate, um, and required a lifetime of care. And uh, in that case, obviously, we brought the case against the apartment complex who had a duty to keep the premises safe and have self-latching, self-closing uh, gates. And we tried the case and it resulted in a $100 million verdict to take care of Lauren for the rest of her life. Did the apartment building have notice? I guess, what was the apartment complex's defense in that case? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we used that case to try to really change the codes and how they check the codes later on. Their defense was, as usual in drowning cases, they blamed the parents. The parents should have been watching them, even though they have a, a gate that violated the local code. Uh, they tried to blame the parents. They were on notice. People had complained about the gate, um, but they just always try to blame the parents. You know, you should watch your kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which really, you know, doesn't help us in society in the fact that we know kids get away from their parents. I mean, the whole purpose in the world of a pool gate in a pool fence is because we know the kids get away from their parents. Uh, but but even so, you know, handling over 30 drowning cases in my career, that's always the defense. And so what was interesting is once we got that verdict, we actually you know, talked to the apartment complex, the defendants about, you know, had they checked this case and had they told you what the code was, what would you do? And they naturally would have fixed it. And the terrible loophole there was that we had the great code, that's no problem, but no one checked for it. And in fact, pool inspectors would come to the pool and they'd take the pH level. They'd make sure there's a life ring. They made sure that you had all these different safety devices, but really not the number one thing, which is the gate. So we were able, um, after a lot of fighting, you know, fighting with companies like Disney World, who I always thought was for kids and for kids safety, 
They fought us because of all the apartments and hotels that they owned that they didn't want some out there checking all the time, which was really crazy. Uh, but we were able to, able to check, uh, change the law, not only in the state, but get that model code out there that's really been able to save a lot of kids. So it's, it's something that we're very proud of. Now, this was a hundred million dollar verdict. What was the meaning behind the damages awarded here? Well, you know, I, I think number one, when you talk about a child who's never going to be able to eat on their own, um, who's never going to be able to you know, get married. I mean, she's totally catastrophically brain damaged, nonverbal. The life care plan to take care of her the rest of her life was, you know, $36 million. Um, so all those factors come into it. And so you have huge damages. But I think what also happens is juries, you know, when they see something that's inexcusable to them and they see defendants violate the law and not do what, what to really many people is common sense. And then, and then you go and you, and you inflame the jury when you blame mom and dad who have been taking care of this child, who are good parents. Um, I think that that can inflame a jury and get a jury very angry. And, um, and that's something too, when you start talking to industries about you know, jury trials and, and about these type of cases, you talk to them about, you know, these are cases that juries can be upset about. So you're better off, number one, you can save people and that's the right thing to do. But number two, to protect your pocketbook, as you mentioned, be careful to uh, go into trial with these type of damages, with these type of just unbelievably sympathetic plaintiffs with a little girl, you know, couldn't even tell her own story, you know, which was really sad. So you mentioned that you were able to push through new regulations and that those are saving lives now. So I want to talk about those. The Virginia Graham Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act. How did that come about? Who were the key players there? Yeah, so that, that involves something that, you know, really people have known about for many years. It's the phenomenon of suction entrapment. So you know, a lot of us when we were younger remember diving in pools and chasing pennies and they would float down to the drain because of the suction of the pool. And uh, John Edwards had gotten a giant verdict, a former senator, uh, vice presidential candidate um, in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where a young woman was entrapped on, on a drain cover and was totally eviscerated. I mean, just a horrible injury. And he had gotten a $26 million verdict and the industry did nothing. I then represented a young man named Lorenzo Peterson who was entrapped with his arm in a pool. Six people tried to get him out and adults could not pull him out because of the suction of the drain. It was so powerful. And we got a $102 million verdict and the industry would not change a thing. I went to countless Consumer Product Safety Commission meetings testifying about 238 documented suction entrapments that the pool industry knew about and nothing would be changed. And then uh, Virginia Graham Baker, uh, who was six years old at the time at a kindergarten celebration party, graduation party in Alexandria, Virginia, was in a hot tub with seven other children. And she went down and sat down the bottom and her, her, her butt cheek got caught on the drain. And all those kids panicked, tried to pull her out, the adults, came to the hot tub, tried to pull her out. And by the time someone thought to go turn off the pump, she had died. Um, her grandfather was Secretary of State James Baker. Um, and at that time, he wasn't uh, still in office, but he had helped the 
current president at the time, uh, President Bush, to attain office, as we all remember in the recount. And so when we brought that case, you know, the, the case, we had all the evidence. We had everything that I had seen in my case and everything else. But now we had a political ally, a big time political ally. And um, within a year, you know, Republicans and Democrats came together to pass the first, uh, really the first pool safety measure ever by Congress. Um, and what that requires is that pools either have a suction vacuum relief device. And just what that means, as you can imagine, is a pump senses that there's a blockage, which could be a human, could be something else. And it turns off the pump automatically. And that's been available for 30 years. Uh, and if your pump doesn't have that, you have to have dual main drains, which obviously differentiates suction. So no one can now be entrapped. And knock on wood, uh, since that act was passed more than 10 years ago, we have not had a suction entrapment in the United States. Um, so, you know, it really shows you sometimes if you can get the right political players with a safety initiative like this, you can accomplish great things. So here's a question you might not know the answer to, but I think is interesting. How much would it have cost per pump to have that device on that the industry was refusing to make the changes? Well, unfortunately, I know that answer. Um, and the reason is because in the internal documents of these pump companies, you can imagine what it said. They knew the technology was there. They had tested it, but they had 3.5 million single drain pools in the United States of America. So the device, if mass produced, you know, would be about $50. So you do 50 times 3.5 million. And that's why they didn't do anything. And, um, and it was terrible because I, I could name you the names. I can see the awful chart that I used in the, my closing argument on uh, the Peterson case, which showed all the names of those victims, which mostly were children, but were adults as well. And to think that could have all been prevented, uh, you know, it's tough. And you, you mentioned earlier, Renee, where victims come to you and they just don't want what happened to them to happen to someone else. And, you know, I think that really comes from, you know, the, the victims become re-victimized when they see that happened to me. And then even worse, it happened to someone else, but it should not have because everybody knows better, you know, and, and we see that in negligent security cases all the time where, you know, a certain hotel that doesn't have peepholes, you know, and, and, and a woman sexually assaulted because somebody breaks in a room and then it happens again. And they see it on the news. So it's, it, it's stuff that, you know, victims of crime are different. They're different types of plaintiffs. I always tell lawyers, you got to really understand this difference because they can be traumatized over and over as, as we've all seen in our work. So I am not the greatest at math, but I tried to just do it quickly in my head. And Mariana is pinging me as well. And so our listeners know Mariana helps me on every podcast. We've both done some math to be a, about 175 million for the industry, given the numbers yeah. you threw out, correct? And so they chose, so it's a huge number, but we're looking at that compared to the cost of human lives and human dignity. Yeah. And, and you know, what was terrible about it is, you know, I'm going to these, you know, Consumer Product Safety Commission meetings, you know, thinking, wow, this is the group that looks after us. And had all the data, 
had everything, had, had the verdicts, had the results, and the whole pool industry would use their same argument that lost in front of many juries to the CPSC and we couldn't, we couldn't get it done. And let me tell you, I'm not going to lie to you. Every time, every time I got a new one of those cases, I knew I should not have that case. That should have never happened. And, and for me, I mean, it was awful that the pit I got in my stomach that did I try hard enough? Did I work hard enough at that CPSC meeting? Why couldn't I convince these people to do this? Cause now there's another victim. And, uh, yeah, you know, Nancy Baker, who was who was Grammy's mom, was an absolute champion, and thank God for her because the amount of lives she has saved is is unbelievable. What a legacy for her beautiful daughter too. And so now, one of my questions was going to be, what does this case tell you about the ways civil justice can shape our society? But here, it took even more than civil justice because you had an industry that kept ignoring cases. So. So how do we move on from that if you have an industry that's ignoring cases and you don't have a very powerful person in office? Yeah, you know, one, one thing that we always do in our cases is you, you have different clients that handle all these tragedies differently, obviously. Some, some don't ever want to deal with it again. Um, I'll have clients who I'll, I'll check on every couple of years. You know, and, they're, and they're almost kind of like, Mike, you, know, you don't have to do this. And I'll be like, why? I love to talk to you because remember you remain you remind me of the worst tragedy ever happened in my life. I always think about them like wow, you know. And so you have different clients that some that they want to they want to be involved in advocacy for the rest of their life. And I'll give you to me one of the one of the most amazing examples is is the Parkland families. Um, we represent uh, three different you know three different families. One was a teacher who was shot that's still alive, still teaches, still teaches at that school. Um, we represent uh, the Oliver family, Joaquin Oliver. Um, and we represent uh, the Beagle family. Scott Beagle is a teacher who stood in a doorway to save his children and lost his life for it. And all three of the, all three of, of those families, you know, they're fighting gun, gun reform in the United States of America. I mean, you talk about an uphill battle. I mean, that, Columbine didn't change, that Sandy Hook didn't change, and likely Parkland alone will not change, but they're never going to give up. And uh, so I always tell folks, you're not going to pass a bill in Congress within six months of, of what happened to you. Um, it's a long road. And one thing that can never be underrated is, is awareness. You know, awareness isn't a congressional bill, I understand that, but it brings knowledge, it brings people to the issue. And so as long as you're talking about it and other people are talking about it, it's a win. And there's a lot of small victories to get there, uh, but you're right. I mean, a verdict's just not gonna do it and legislation's not easy. So somewhere in the middle, you're still winning if people are talking about the issue and, and the change that's needed. Well, let's talk about some of the Parkland victims and their efforts, especially their recent efforts. I will not mention the congressperson's name who is known for harassing these victims, but she's not alone in online bullying and harassing and stalking them. So how do you prepare your clients, especially when it's gun violence, for the amount of blowback that they may get? and just the attacks that they might be receiving, especially in today with social media? 
No, it's tough. And and that and that's a reason that a lot of clients don't want to get into that advocacy arena. Um, you know, I, I've never met stronger people in my life than the Beagles and the Olivers and Stacey LaPelle, uh, who's still the teacher there. I mean, now, now Manny looks for, he looks for fights. Um, and and so does Linda. And you look at Linda's success in the New York legislature and what she's been able to do with red flag laws and everything along those lines. And uh, so they're the exception to the rule because they can they can take it, you know. But no, we talked to all our clients about if you're going to get in that fight, um, you you better understand the lessons of Sandy Hook, which is just one of the more disgusting things I've ever uh, witnessed in my life with um, the conspiracy theories and and. Uh, and, you know, Sandy Hook, those families really went another route because they were so attacked that they started doing these great programs for schools about how to be aware, how to, how to, how to see a kid that's sitting alone, to find, find these troubled kids. Um, and, and just to think about that, that they're worried about, well, can we find the troubled kid who may become a killer, how we lost our children? I mean, to think about how profound that is and amazing that they're willing to do that. Um, but it's got to be, as a victim's lawyer, you've got to really be educated in it, understand it, be victim-centered. And you bring up another great example of civil justice stepping in where there seem to be no solutions with Alec Jones and the Sandy Hook shooting case. And Alex Jones just had a very large verdict found against him. Now, whether or not the attorneys will be able to collect on that, we don't know. But there was at least an avenue for for those victims of that shooting and then subsequently of Alex, Alex Jones to seek some sort of justice. Yeah, okay. and, and, you know, and, and obviously those are NCVBA members and uh, we all couldn't be prouder of them. I know that, a, that at the conference uh, when they presented, you know, a bunch of us raised our hands and said, I, I don't care if you collect a dollar, but let us help with the judgment process just to continue to chase him so that he knows, and maybe more importantly, others like him know you're not going to get away with this. You're not going to attack victims like this and get away with it. And, um, you know, that's, that's great work because I think it comforts victims to know there is that avenue, you know, and, and, um, and we always talk about when you represent in particular negligent security cases, you know, your, your client's victim once at the crime scene, they're all, they're victimized. Then, They've got to, what's going to happen with the criminal justice system? Is there going to be an arrest? Is there going to be a conviction? Everything I've got to go through. And then when they bring the civil case, which is so important to restore justice to their lives, um, they're going to be attacked to some degree, obviously, by the insurance company, by other folks. So, you know, those stages are very important to explain to your client that it's not going to be easy, but it's worth it. Now, let's talk about negligent security and one of the biggest verdicts ever. Can you walk us through that case? So Sammy um, was a young man, came from Tunisia and North Africa. He worked on a cruise ship down in, in Miami, Florida. And uh, you know, young man enjoying traveling the Caribbean, you know, just enjoying life. He's in the United States of America. And so they, they have a night off and he and a friend uh, go out and decide to go to a uh, adult entertainment facility. Some would call it a strip bar. And so they went there and they went for a couple hours and, and Sammy was leaving and 
He was in the parking lot and he was a victim of an armed carjacking, attempted armed carjacking. He was shot in the back of the neck and he was rendered a quadriplegic. And um, unfortunately, you know, he was making great progress at our trauma hospital down here at Jackson Memorial Hospital in terms of getting off of a ventilator and those type of things. But the cruise lines only have to pay for that for a certain amount of time. And before I got involved in the case, they shipped him back to Seuss, Tunisia, uh, where they don't have respiratory therapists. They don't have physical therapists. They put you in a room. You're a quadriplegic, and whatever happens to you happens. Um, so by the time I got involved in the case, you know, we discovered that this strip mall had 26 violent crimes against it. But the, the strip bar had no insurance, had no assets. So we had to bring the case against the strip mall, which had a very dangerous parking lot, but they were going to blame the strip bar saying that's their, that's what they should have had for security. So, you know, it was a case that, you know, we had a terrible crime problem. We could show that they knew they had crime and that they should have had security beyond what the strip bar had. One of the most complicating factors, though, is that Sammy was in Seuss, Tunisia. He's supposed to be on a ventilator. Um, the two ventilators he had in his house, one was under recall and one didn't work. So his life depended on power outages um, and, and really not having any of the type of medical care that he could. So we, we had to get to trial as soon as we could in that case. Tried the case with Sammy in Seuss, Tunisia. Um, and uh, we're fortunate um, where the, the jury obviously believed that this amount of crime that occurred at this type of place should never happen. And had they had proper security, they uh, would have been able to prevent this from happening from Sammy and the jury awarded over a $100 million verdict. And um, what was amazing is we flew over some ENTs to Seuss from Paris to take care of Sammy's tracheal tube still had fishing line. They had to repair it with fishing line um, to stay, to try to keep his tracheal tube connected to the, the ventilator. Um, these doctors wouldn't touch it. We air ambulanced him after the verdict to Miami and they were able to repair it. And Sammy's alive today in South Florida, um, opened up a restaurant, a fantastic guy and, and advocates for security um, to these types of malls because they, they are very dangerous when they have alcohol serving establishments. So he's become a great advocate, moved his whole family from Tunisia. And, and that case kind of brought a lot of light to uh, these types of negligent security cases because the verdict was so big that a lot of different companies took notice that I've, I've got to really have security or bad crimes are going to happen, bad injuries are going to happen, and I, and I might be a defendant in a lawsuit. Moving forward with our discussion of how civil justice can impact industries and our everyday lives, I want to talk about a case in California involving child abuse in Little League Baseball, and that's Hickman versus Little League Baseball. What happened? Can you talk us through the trajectory of that case? Sure, sure. So that that, that case was a long time ago, and, and I don't know if anybody listening to this might remember, there was a Sports Illustrated cover that um, showed a, a number of mug shots and the headline said, who's coaching your kid? And um, basically came out of a terrible investigation that happened in California and centered around San Bernardino, California, where um, a, a man that had been convicted of uh, 
of sex crimes up in Northern California, um, relocated to Southern California um, and volunteered to become a baseball coach with the American Little League Association. And back then, all you did was fill out an application. You say, you affirm you haven't been convicted of a crime. You, you put on there your resume. And uh, on this particular individual's resume, there was a year gap um, where if anybody had checked, he had been in a mental hospital due to his pedophilia. Um, he, ha he had been convicted uh, of molesting children and there was no background check done. And so I represented two brothers, Jimmy and Garrett Hickman. Their father was rendered a paraplegic in Vietnam. And uh, so their dad, you know, wanted them to play sports and really kind of had to trust that the local coach would take them to practice, bring them back. Um, and, uh, you know, because of his situation, couldn't, you know, really do all the things that most dads want to do and can do. And uh, unfortunately, that was the coach. Obviously, he molested more than 17 children in that little league over a four-year period. You know, Jimmy was older. And so Jimmy went through this abuse. And then his brother played for the same coach. And Jimmy knew what was happening and was going through all different types of guilt, jealousy, all these different emotions that know he was 14 at the time and his brother was 12 should ever endure. I mean, just awful. And uh, we represented the family. The case was, you know, Oprah Winfrey covered it, a, a, a bunch of different individuals. But the, the, the really amazing thing about those kids was by the time the case got ready to settle, Jimmy at least was 18. And they weren't going to try the case. And, you know, we, we, they were going to pay a significant sum of money. And I'll never forget, an 18-year-old kid looked across from me and said, I don't want to sell this case unless they mandate that they do background checks. And this never happens again. And, you know, a lot of lawyers, we would love for that to be the, the situation in every case. But we can't, if a client wants to resolve a case, we can't stay in the way of confidentiality or anything. But the client was telling me, hey, I'm not doing this unless that. And so they said, well, then they're not going to settle the case. I said, great, let's go to, we're going to go to trial. And a week before we we're going to pick the jury, they agreed. And it was amazing because I took the deposition of the executive director of Little League Baseball in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, right outside that beautiful stadium. We always watch the Little League World Series at. And I asked him, I was about to take a six-hour deposition. My first question was, why don't you do background checks on every coach? And he said, because we wouldn't get as many volunteers. And I almost just stopped the depot and said, okay, I'm done. I'm going to fly home. Um, and that was, that's why it was so important to Jimmy and ultimately Garrett. And, uh, and so since their case, every Little League coach in the United States of America, and obviously that's transpired to every sport, AAU basketball, any league, now does criminal background checks. And it, you know, it's because of two brothers in, in Southern California who you know, had the courage to do that. And speaking of the NCBBA, it was, it was a great pleasure of mine to uh, several years after that, uh, Jimmy presented with me. And to see him as a, a father, a husband, um, you know, his own business. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm getting emotional about it right now. I mean, and to see him talking to victims and see him talking to lawyers how important what they do is, but don't lose your why you do it. 
don't lose your why. And and he always talked about his why and, you know, how many kids' lives he's changed is amazing. And and uh, so, you know, that's, that's just one of the reasons I'm so proud to be blessed enough to do what I do. I love talking with you about your clients because you have such passion for them and, and they come to you at really hard times. And you and I have talked a lot about advocating with empathy and compassion. So how do you do that? And what state, what, what, what do you do to put your clients first and connect with them to, to provide them with needed support? Well, you know, it, it, it's really probably one of the toughest things that I do, but I think it, it might be one of the, the better things I've learned to do is I just, I always think of, you know, what if I'm in this situation? You know, what if my children are in this situation? And, and, uh, and you know this, Renee, maybe some people listen to you. I went through a kidney transplant and it was, a, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I just, you know, kind of realized, you know, how fragile everything is in life. And, um, and so, you know, when I tried those drowning cases, I'll never forget. I mean, I, I would look at my daughter who was three years old at the time that I'm representing Lauren Hinton, who's three years old. So I would see Lauren during the day struggling to breathe, being suctioned. And then I'd look at my daughter that night, the same age. And so, you know, I would do anything for my kids, anything. And I, and I think you have to take your, that, that passion to what you would do for your clients. And, um, and I draw power from my clients. I draw inspiration. Um, I think we all do. I mean, they've, they've been through so much, but they're still going, you know, um, I often say, I mean, the, obviously the worst thing any human can suffer is the loss of a child. And I always tell parents, I may have represented, you know, 50, a hundred parents have lost their child. I'll never understand that. And I don't want to ever understand that. Um, but I look at them with just awe, awe that they can somehow keep going. And uh, so, you know, when you are a trial lawyer and you represent victims, you, I think you have to go into some dark places. I mean, you have to really feel it and, um, and understand their plight. And it's tough because sometimes, obviously, clients are tremendously demanding, you know, because think about what they're going through. You know, and other clients aren't demanding enough because, you know, so there's that balance and um, it, it's not easy. You know, that's one thing I always tell my lawyers here, especially young lawyers, like if you wanted something, something easy, this ain't it. You know, it's, it's hard work, but it's incredibly important work. And, um, you know, if you ever lose that passion, you need to get out. What do these cases tell you about the American public and, and specifically how we value life, the rights of victims and really their families and the future of the justice system? Well, that's a, that's a big question. A loaded question. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I try to see the good in people, you know, when, after we got that Barack verdict, I was contacted by the American Society of Industrial Security, which is the biggest security uh, organization in the world. And their conference is 10,000 people. And they asked me, a plaintiff's lawyer, who sues them to come speak to them about how do we avoid these situations. And I always tell them, I'm not here to talk to you about defending your case, because I'll never do that. I'm here to achieve a common goal. How do we provide security? How do we stop mass shootings? 
how do we stop domestic violence? How do we stop, you know, human trafficking? With business, industry, and, and lawyers and advocacy groups working together. And they've invited me back for 15 years. And I think it's a great synergy of business saying, I don't, I don't want to be sued. But more importantly, I don't want someone murdered in my mall. I mean, we, nobody wants this. And instead of looking at it always adversarial, how can we work collectively together? And I think that, um, you know, we, we had all those battles and we still have them with tort reform. You know, and you would hear people always say, ah, you know, these frivolous lawsuits. But I think people have learned over time that lawsuits change things. I mean, there's a reason we don't have pintos exploding anymore. There's a reason we wear seatbelts. There's a reason we do all these things, and lawsuits have, have brought them. I mean, lawsuits have really been the catalyst. I mean, I represented the Baker family. I mean, you're talking about strong Republicans with President Bush, who is an advocate for tort reform. But let me tell you, once it happens to you, I mean... You know, the Baker family, Secretary Baker would make jokes about me being a trial lawyer and saying, well, I guess we needed one, you know. And so I, I have hopes for society and especially with the judicial system within that. I think people have a sense of justice and have a sense of, of safety, you know. And, and um, so I have hopes with it. And um, I, I think, look, we're, we're one of four countries in the world that you can try a civil case to a jury. Four. There's there's jury trials for criminal cases all over the world, but not in Canada in a civil case. I mean, think about that. So we still are have the greatest judicial system in the world by far. It's got its flaws. Um, and it can translate to changing the biggest of industries. And that's a that's a beautiful thing when you can do that. Well, that is about all the time we have for today. But Mike, Thanks for bringing it home for us on the reason that we do these civil cases and, and on the very reason we have this podcast. Thank you for joining us today. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again. If you have questions for Mike, as always, we are going to put the link to his website in the show notes. So please make sure to check them out so you can find how to contact Mike. And thanks again for tuning in. Please join us next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.